Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening, uh, my name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm the architecture program curator here at the Royal Academy. This is the second event of the Designing Urban Identity series. Uh, the first one will focus on is London. This time we are focusing on West London. In this series, we are exploring how the character of the urban fabric of London varies across the city and how it is defined by the different economical, political and social factors uh, in its different areas and how the architecture that uh, the new upcoming uh, development for of some of the more relevant upcoming development for these areas are going to deal with these uh, existing identities and proposing new ones. As I said, the first event will focus on is London. Then uh, we analyzed three projects here is at the former Olympic Park, uh, the Royal Albert Docks, and the Barking Riverside. This time, we have selected another three different projects in West London, three different projects that provide like, very different visions uh, in terms of scale, but also the program that they are proposing and the architecture that they are dealing with, uh, the existing architecture there. These projects are the Old Vinyl Factory at Highs, the master plan for the BBC Television Centre at White City and the scheme for the Old Oak and Royal Park area. The format of the event, uh, the event will start with 12-minute presentation from the three speakers representing these three projects, uh, followed by a discussion with two respondents and some time for a question from the audience. Our chair this evening is Sumi Boss. She is teacher, curator and editor based in London. She is senior lecturer in contextual studies at Central St. Martins and also teaches at the Architectural Association. She co-curated the British Pavilion at last year's Venice Biennale and was a curatorial collaborator with Sir David Chipperfield at the 13th Biennale of Architecture. Before I hand over to, to Shumi, uh, uh, I would like to invite you to join the debate online on Twitter, uh, tagging uh, the architecture department um, profile, which is at architecture underscore RA, and using the hashtag uh, urban identities. Also, I would like to, to thank to the supporters of the architecture program at the Royal Academy of Arts, uh, who are the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture and Turkish Ceramics. And now, please give a warm welcome to our chair this evening, who will be introducing the speakers, uh, Sumi Boss. Thanks for coming on such a lovely evening on what promises to be hopefully quite enlightening debate. Um, I'm not going to say very much because we've got lots of people to talk to us about the work that's going on in West London and kind of further than what we think of as West London, perhaps. We were just having a conversation earlier about how I might have an idea of the West End. I'm sure some of you guys do have an idea of the West End. I teach, and so for the generations that I'm teaching coming up, I'm not sure that the West End is such a solidified idea or even identity within London's makeup um, moving forward. And... The areas that we're talking about today are perhaps further afield and, and really um, not so much dependent on historic narratives of what the West End of London is, but new ones. Um, and we have some fairly major projects, exciting projects, that um, attempt to almost seed new towns or cities in terms of the scale of development that's going on. So I'm really keen to hear about how these projects both um, respond to and integrate into the existing fabric of um, historic London, but also how they seek to, let's say, diversify or even expand what we think of um, as West London. I mean, if we think about central London, 
the South Bank, even the city on the east, we can think of lots of iconic buildings that have come up in the last 20 years, um, lots of kind of major developments, but hopefully we can learn a little bit more about what is yet to come in West London. So, um, one thing I'll say before we start, if I can ask you all um, to make notes and have questions based on what's being presented, I'm sure we're going to be bombarded with lots of fantastic images and rhetoric about what's going to happen to West London, and I'm sure that's going to be sparking lots of questions for you too. If I could ask you to please make a note of them, because we have time at the end, and it would be great to have some questions from you, um, as well as the respondents to the panel. So, um, without further ado then, I will introduce the first speaker, who's... David West from Studio Egret West. David's a partner at Studio Egret West and an urban designer um, specialising in urban visions and strategic frameworks. Egret West have worked on diverse projects all over the world, set up in 2004, and I think you'll be speaking to us largely about the vinyl factory development. Yes. Thank you, Shumi. Uh, good evening. I've got 45 slides to rattle through in my 12 minutes. Uh, and uh, I'm feeling a little bit weary because I spent the entire day strolling around the Dartington Estate in Devon, which is just north of Totnes, which is a very interesting place-making story uh, for you people who are interested in design and identity. I recommend it, uh, a day out there. Um, uh, I'm one half of a, of, of a partnership that's called Studio Agre West, and we are celebrating 12 years of crafting places in London, uh, so much so that we've actually just launched our first publication, which I'm going to shamelessly plug uh, this evening uh, if you agree with anything I say. Um, we are we consider ourselves consummate placemakers um, because we spend so much time um, learning um, about the places that we work in, uh, their identities, and we're massive believers in uh, framework planning and place-specific interventions in places rather than the master plan, uh, kind of which we always think is a very peculiar uh, word in terms of controlling the future which of course one can't control. Um, so we, uh, we deliberately, for our studio, have taken a ground floor showroom uh, space in Clerkenwell where we transparently show pretty much everything we're doing, <laughs> everything we're involved in, everything we feel passionately about um, and constantly kind of writing the stories of the projects and the places that we're working in on the windows uh, so that people can get involved and come in and see what we're doing. Um, and so it's kind of a, a platform for exchanging ideas about place and about uh, what's happening in our cities. We feel that's our responsibility um, because we're probably responsible as designers for 20,000 homes uh, in London at the moment, which is quite a considerable amount of homes given that we're only a 60-person strong practice. Uh, it's staggering sometimes to think the scale that we're working in. Um, and we're constantly sort of uh, changing the look and the feel of our studio uh, to uh, actually sort of emulate some of the things, the themes we're thinking about that we think are really important. I did promise a shameless plug. Um, we have actually just, well, tomorrow actually, launching our first publication, which is actually called uh, Evolving, uh, play, uh, Framing Serendipity, which is actually all about this idea of not trying to fix too much too soon and allowing a place to evolve over time. Uh, always very, very, very careful about the place. So I'm going to talk about the old vinyl factory in about eight minutes. 
Uh, and uh, as I said, the crucial thing to remember, we think in all the placemaking projects that everybody gets involved in, is that you are just, you know, a, a cog in the, a cog in the wheel and in, in, in the machine of the of time that's continuing to grow and change. And to to be arrogant enough to think that that any of us as designers could control everything is just completely wrong and completely misplaced. And of course, there's always a huge amount of history on a site before anybody gets involved in in, in terms of its transformation or its change um, but what we try to do is to really sort of un unpick the history of a place and understand what it means to the communities around it before we sort of shape any ideas um, for the place so this is the old final factory site in Hayes it has it's a zone five location so really close to the edge of, uh, of London it's really close to Heathrow this is the station um, that's going to be transformed as a crossrail station and that's the kind of the, the area that we looked at actually I think yeah that's the area that we've been sort of um, thinking about in terms of transforming. Um, it's a, a rather special uh, site, uh, as we learnt, as we sort of matured our ideas. Uh, it's actually the old gramophone factory, and then his uh, master's uh, voice, and then latterly EMI, and then a completely and utterly uh, empty, completely and utterly derelict site since the mid-1980s. For the best part of 20 years, it laid completely and utterly dormant. Really sad, because there's some really quite fantastic buildings there that immediately give us this quite strong uh, white warehouse vernacular and some really, really beautiful buildings um, that have uh, sort of lain, lain bare and lain empty. This is the master plan <laughs> that we inherited. Uh, it's for a place called um, London Gate. Uh, in terms of identity, I think I'm giving away the fact that I think it's an absolutely ridiculous uh, uh, title for the place. Uh, London Gate, this is proper lazy architecture and development, in my opinion. And I know this is being filmed. Um, uh, it, basically, the buildings were kept and sort of turned into big corporate office blocks, a bit like Stockley Park, but not quite as cool because they don't have the landscape. All they have is surface car parking, then a gatehouse building, even though it was never a gatehouse, and then some sort of uh, apologetic residential wrapped on to the side just to help the numbers and that's the place. Uh, I'm very happy to say we're not going to do that and with our, our really fantastic developer client of ours, you and I, uh, we're transforming this place over time because they said go and spend some time researching the place and tell us what you think of uh, and this plan. And of course we said this plan started with S and we realized that, uh, that actually uh, this is and was and still is the old vinyl factory and um, uh, many a time, I'm hoping someone at least punches me about this later, we've been told that we're patronizing for using the kind of the, the history of vinyl to sort of drive our project forward. I'll take that straight on. I think it's absolutely fantastic narrative building thing and I've seen hundreds and I mean hundreds of people smile and dance and play records and love the idea of bringing uh, the story of this place back to life because it's a fantastic story with so many nuances. Yes, the gramophone really was created here. Yes, the gramophone really did go to the Arctic Circle uh, to actually help people uh, stay happy. And yes, I do know the story about the, uh, the dog there and that's another day's work. So we just started our entire placemaking initiative by renaming the project, ditching uh, London Gate, bringing in the old vinyl factory, uh, and then making a cafe. And the cafe started to talk and play records. Uh, and then we started to invite everybody in to get involved in what they knew about this amazing place. Who worked there, who didn't work there, who knew somebody who'd had a party there or recorded something there or played something there or made something there. And slowly, we found that this completely disconnected place uh, could be reconnected again to the local population and to the local high street. Indeed, we renamed a completely pedestrian route, The Groove. Uh, and it, well, 
forgive the pun, uh, but it actually held people together. You're not allowed to call a street the groove uh, if you try and apply for that in terms of a postal address. It's now going to be called Vinyl Walk. But the groove, <laughs> it's all right, the groove actually helped uh, this place sort of come to life. And then we said, well, yes, there's going to be a lot of accommodation, and there should be a lot of accommodation, because this is Zone 5, and it needs to actually have some energy, some critical mass. So we kind of, as an average of about six, seven, uh, eight stories of accommodation, we kind of actually packed in 650 homes rather than a sort of a, on the edge 100 homes uh, but in no way shape or form do we undermine the possibility for nearly 4,000 jobs worth of square meters of space to actually be sort of um, compactly put into the place but on the frontispiece we said everything should be alive and kicking uh, and then we sort of assembled the residences and then we started to create and craft a really narrative based sequence of public spaces um, the, the, the groove the powerhouse square the vinyl square, the gramophone grove, oh, that sounds naff, uh, the, uh, the kind of the, the, the roof gardens, and suddenly, rather than a big car park, we actually made a good place. Uh, and uh, we got a consent for that, and then started building. Uh, and now, if you whoosh past on the train, uh, past Hayes, on the way to, uh, to Bath or Bristol or Reading or anywhere like that, you'll see a huge amount of change going on. This is a, a building called the Gatefold Building. Ooh, that's dangerously close to being NAF. But actually, it's actually just simply about EPs that open and close and can actually sort of disconnect from each other and actually create an interesting shape. This is called the Boiler House. Uh, it really is on the site that the Boiler House used to be. We found an old plan. It used to have three slightly truncated forms. We use those forms to actually delineate a kind of a rather special apartment building. Uh, and there it is. It's on site with a fantastic developer called Hub who are bringing forward affordable homes. Uh, and it's crafted and it's slightly unusual and it's slightly tapered and it's definitely made of metal. And it has this rather imaginative orange uh, facade made of CLT. It's happening. It's going up really fast. And then we said, well, what also happened on this place? And we realized that actually the CAT scanner was actually invented here, alongside a myriad of other amazing inventions over the years. So our client decided to make a central research lab to really start to seed the ideas of new jobs, new enterprise. And it's going really, really well. And uh, this is actually the permanent version of a transformed building that will all be about new jobs, new enterprise, new innovation. Uh, and that's really exciting to see. Um, we got got a consent for a cinema. And then, as I said, this is a framework, not a master plan. The cinema wanted 450 car parking spaces. That's the antithesis of anything we wanted to do urbanistically. So we gave the cinema the boot. And instead, because of all the noise around vinyl and the old vinyl factory, uh, someone from Leicester Square called Global uh, said, we would like to come and make an academy in this place from nothing. So we made the name, we made the story, and then suddenly we would like to make an academy in this place to allow young kids to actually think about um, digital recording studios, making music and, 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 and change. So we, we ditched the cinema, and instead we have the Global Academy UTC, currently 200 students uh, built to actually have 800 students. Uh, and it's really, really exciting uh, uh, to see that that sort of initiative is changing just because of a name just because of a story, uh, and we think that's really uh, exciting to see. We got consent for a circular building, which we called the record stack, to hide all the car parking, uh, and, uh, and then realized that uh, that was unaffordable. So we made the record box, uh, and then we found uh, a nice sort of motif of people screaming uh, how excited they were to see a particular band. Uh, went through 15 different iterations before the council said, yes, we approve of this. So we're very glad about that, and that's actually on site. 
And this is the groove. This is Gramophone Grove. Oh my God, it looks so naff. But actually, wait, maybe it isn't naff. Because actually we went to the archive, met all the really proud people in the archive. They showed us all the kit and we found the original gramophone, the, the gramophone that all the way, all the way into the Antarctic expedition with uh, Captain Scott because he wanted to keep his people happy uh, before the unfortunate thing that happened to them at the end. But importantly, uh, we then actually made the gramophone grove, which was literally a kind of off my tongue to be honest, and now it turns into this rather gorgeous thing where we have these four giant gramophones just quietly sitting in the space. Maybe one day they'll play music. I'm not going to tell you about that. Uh, then this is the powerhouse, uh, and that's exciting too. It really was the original powerhouse that fueled the entire uh, warehouse district. And now it's the powerhouse, which was previously going to be, what was it called? The gate building or something. The, the, this is now the powerhouse for the entire environment, the entire 650 homes, and then connected into the wider community at large. And that's exciting too. Last slide, um, final square. That's the heart of the space. It's the transformation of the cabinet building. Next act up tonight. Orford Hall, Marana Morris, worked with us on this scheme. And this is uh, something that Paul uh, designed, which is this uh, cabinet building. And he popped a cabinet out the top. And that's going to be a pretty exciting uh, new building too. And yes, I can confirm that we will be building a dog. Uh, uh, at the heart of the scheme. It's going to take us right to the edge of acceptability, but I bet you, I bet you, it'll be so, so, so popular with uh, the neighbourhood at large, and we'll be very proud when that dog starts woofing. Thank you. Welcome, please, Hazel Joseph, um, who's Associate Director at AHMM. We're largely going to be talking about the BBC TV Centre Master Plan, a new large-scale scheme that transforms um, this kind of very iconic site in all of our psyches. Um, so quite a major transformation, I think. But prior to that project, Hazel's also worked on um, the Barbican Arts Centre, Barking Central, and Muse in the William Street Quarter Master Plan. She also recently um, led design and development of the Capitol Building at Nine Elms. Um, a large-scale residential apartment building. Um, but today, you're going to be talking to us largely about White City. So, yeah, I'm from Orford Hall, Monaghan-Morris, and I'm going to present to you today just um, a kind of summary of what we're doing in West London in, at the television centre, BBC Television Centre. So um, the site's really rich. It has a very kind of strong identity and a strong history, going back um, many, many years. So it was originally the site for the Olympics in 1908, and it was also the site for the uh, Franco-British exhibition, which was in the same year. So there's a very strong um, identity to the existing, the existing site. White City, the whole name for the region, was all developed from the, um, the kind of typology of the buildings that was developed for the Franco-British exhibition, which were all these or, or, um, oriental buildings, all in the colour white. So that's just like an interesting fact for you. But this was a site which in um, 1948 was handed over for the construction of the first ever purpose-built television studios. Um, Graham Dorban was the architect who was um, given the task of redesigning and reimagining what this kind of new typology could evolve into. And legend has it that he drew a question mark on a piece of paper and actually that stuck as the icon for the, how the site would be established as a, as a working television centre. So there you can see one of the early diagrams showing how the site might evolve in this question mark formation. Um, it was quite an interesting diagram as it stood because the way, the way it worked was that there was a central circular space which held all the um, kind of commercial and functional spaces and then radiating out from that were the television studios all encompassed by this surface, um, service road which wrapped around 
in this kind of sinuous, this sinuous route. So that was a very early sketch that was developed. Um, and it kind of stuck, it held. So by 1960, the, the site was opened up as the, first, as the first television studios, and you can see there some of the original photographs from when um, the buildings were first occupied. Um, the building was listed in, I think, um, 2009, I think, um, and some of these kind of very, very special, specific spaces were, list, were uh, mentioned in the listing. So the very iconic elevation of the Studio One facade, which is the bottom um, left-hand image there with those like, um, atomic dots, which is, you know everyone recognises that instantly with the site. The Helios central space, which is a courtyard, which was very, meant to be as like a contemplative garden, which all the green rooms, dressing rooms and um, office spaces opened up onto with this fountain and the, the Helios statue in the centre. And then these kind of sinuous, very uh, circular corridors and uh, you know, everything was about this kind of donut environment where, where everything was open for everyone to use. So very special, very special site, loved by many people. Um, this is an overview of the site when we, when we were first asked to start working on it. And you can see there in, this, in the bottom of the image there the question mark formation of the, of the buildings there and how it sits in context with the rest of London. So on the horizon you can see the city centre, obviously, and the television centre site was very much separated by it, by this kind of logistical, um, this logistical land. You know, there was the Dairy Crest and there was lots of other uh, um, um, organisations which situated themselves there, mainly because of their transport links. Um, so when we were asked to work on the site, this is how we, this is how we found it. Um, the local authority, Hammersmith and Fulham, responded to... Um, this area specifically by developing a planning framework which was the White City Opportunity Area which consisted of all these parcels of land and how these could all be um, re-envisaged to create a more holistic community. That was kind of the, the jargon that was being used at the time. So the, the Opportunity Area gave rise to quite a lot of opportunity in that, in that kind of band of, of, of land. Um, Imperial College obviously took over quite a lot of that space to the north of the site and Barclay St James further down and, and Television Centre there marked in, in orange. You can see how it's very, very well connected with the existing the tube stations and um, the rail links as a result. Um, but also you can see its constraints because at the moment it's very sort of landlocked. Um, so we worked with Stanhope who, um, who were our client for this project and we worked with them to uh, formulate a bid for them to um, submit to get the opportunity to redevelop the site. And we set up a couple of principles which underpinned our ideas for how, the, how we might treat the, the, the area. And the top left is basically saying, you know, this is a very loved building and one of the primary objectives of, of the team was to actually leave it as much as we could in its original condition. You know, everyone loves it, why would you want to, why would you want to damage it? And I think one of the reasons that Stanhope won the, the commission was actually because we were proposing not to, um, to change that iconic view too much. Other things which established were to retain the existing question mark and to celebrate it and to work with it rather than change that, and to celebrate the existing history and the fabric of the building, which is, you know, as I've said, it was very loved. Um, when, when we started working with the site, another thing which was true was it was all cordoned off. The local, local public couldn't walk through the site. It was very much private, private property. And one of the things that was very much kind of key to us was um, to open it up to the local community so that you could create cross routes and actually reintegrate um, this area within the local, um, in the neighbourhood. 
Um, so to the south of that image, you've got the logistical area, then you've got the Woodlane estate on one side, then you've got the existing residential townhouses to the other side. And it's like we were very much trying to find out how we could embed this new um, district, if you like, into the local community. So scale, use and height, we were trying to blur those boundaries to, to kind of create connections and create um, synergies between the, the kind of the along the boundaries. <coughs> Um, so master plan. The idea of the master plan was to um, develop a series of, of plots, if you like, which could then could evolve over time. So effectively, the first phase was the inner, the question mark formation that you can see in the middle of that diagram. And um, the peripheral sites are all ones that are going to be developed and worked on in more detail um, over time. The, um, the landscape was a very, very important part for us. Um, as the main offer to the local community, there was this new idea of um, integrating the site into the local community and creating these cross-connections. We're working with Gillespie's as the landscape architect to create lots of routes through, so you can see how we've got this ground plane, which was trying to blur the boundaries um, around the periphery. So the vision, we've got... Um, a number of buildings, a number of plots. This is how we, you know, this is how we see it could be in a number of years' time. But at the moment, we're just working on the question mark, which is, forms the, the kind of the foreground of that image. Um, so I'm just going to talk you through the two the two buildings which are on site at the moment. So the first is the Helios and the Crescent. So the Helios um, is focused around this courtyard space here, and as you can see from this image, this is what we're hoping it will look like. And actually, it's very similar to what it looked like originally. We're trying to do very light touch. Um, insertions into the existing building, um, refurbished facades, new hotel rooms, new residential accommodation, new active ground floors with the BBC retaining quite a lot of use and um, other retail opportunities within that space to make a much more lively environment. But effectively, we're trying to maintain its original character. Um, internal spaces, again, there's a very ama amazing um, environment in the stage door, which is the bottom right-hand image there. Um, which was where everyone used to enter in to use the studio spaces. And ultimately, we're just trying to celebrate the original architecture and bring it back to its original condition. So there's a very rich combination of materials and the original Piper mural on that back wall. Um, very kind of um, luxurious residential offer in terms of the accommodation. There's a screening room and a residence lounge and a library and a kitchen and a community space. So lots of things going on in the ground floor plane there. And then the public face, which is a new facade, which looks out to the west and to the, to the community around Hammersmith Park. So there's a view there from Hammersmith Park looking at the, the, um, the outside face of that courtyard. Um, in terms of the interiors and the design that we were trying to follow, it was very much referencing back to the heritage of the building and the era in which it was all constructed. So trying to expose the existing fabric. You can see the existing structure in those top two images. We're trying to expose that and work with that and polish screed floors. So going back to the existing fabric of the building and celebrating that and how we're um, approaching the, the interiors and the design of those. So work on site. We've been on site now for about nearly two years. Um, we've got about another year to completion. And these are just some images of what's going on at the moment. So you can start to see in the bottom images how we're working with the existing fabric and how that's, that's going. It's, I mean, having worked on the project for over four and a half years, it's amazing now to see actually the, the, the kind of finished building starting to, to take shape in, in how we envisaged it. And you can see how we're working very carefully on the heritage environments to uh, return those to the, exist, to the original um, glory, if you like. Um, the television factory is, the, is a commercial building which sits alongside... Um, the, um, the building we just looked at. So it's over 10 storeys. Um, 
it's predominantly uh, an office building which is trying to um, open up to the um, to the kind of creative industries which is the, the ambition for the for the whole area at the ground floor there's a lot of accommodation for restaurants and bars opening out onto the full court which is where the, the heritage um, assets maybe are and on the top there's a three-story um, members club which has a rooftop swimming pool and various other things um, Inside, there's a public route through which cuts through the middle of the building, which connects the full court area to the to the wider um, neighbourhoods. And there's this ten-storey atrium which allows light down through the middle of the building, which you can see there. Again, um, work is progressing quickly on site, and there you can see some progress site um, images of what's happening. So we've got um, the new facades in, which are trying to reference the original building, where we've got effectively a brick facade. Um, uh, re reflecting the original brick that was used throughout the site. Um, windows going in, ceilings going in, floor plates all you know, nearing completion, and then this amazing um, dramatic 10-storey atrium which cuts down through the middle of the building. Um, there's an overview of the works that are happening, so you can see there, again, just very much trying to keep the original massing and the original diagram of the, of the site as it was envisaged originally. And um, an overview of what we're hoping we will achieve in another year's time. Thank you. Okay, so last but not least, we've got um, a presentation from Mick Mulhern. He's a chartered town planner, started his career in Haringey Council, so started in the public sector before joining GLA Planning and Regeneration, um, advising the mayor on strategic planning, design and regeneration <laughs> projects including the Opportunity Area Planning Framework. We heard about one of those for White City, for Park Royal and Croydon. But today you're going to be talking to us largely about Old Oak and Park Royal Development Corporation, which um, is another huge extension onto West London's sort of presence. Uh, my name's Mick Mulhern, and I work for the rather snappily titled Old Oak and Park Royal Development Corporation, or uh, OPDC for short. So what we are, for those who don't know what that is, and I wouldn't be surprised, uh, we're the second mayoral development corporation in London, the first being the London Legacy Development Corporation, which was set up to, in the first instance, deliver the games and then the legacy uh, of that. So we are a functional body of the mayor. Um, we are the statutory planning authority for the area and we've taken on the role of a regeneration agency as well. I just noticed uh, when I uh, printed out the presentation that I left uh, my note in for what I had to do the presentation on. So that's what I'm doing the presentation on. It's um, <laughs> a helpful reminder, um, but getting straight into it. Um, so talked, I know there was one last week which was uh, well, city in the east or development in East London, but city in the west, I mean, it's a, it's a broad, big kind of concept, but, you know, why, if I get, yeah, there we go. Um, so this is the old Oakham Park Royal area. It's 650 hectares. It's, it's, a, it's immediately north of um, White City and, and uh, the Stanhope scheme that Hazel was talking about. Um, it's beside Kensal. It's just to the south of Wembley, Brent Cross, uh, just out past, or before Heathrow, and actually, if you think about this area in total, it's about six miles as the crow flies in, in, that, in that angle there, in that direction. And actually, between Shepherd's Bush and, and Wembley, the majority of people wouldn't really know what's going on there, unless really you've seen Scum, the prison movie, which was set in Wormwood Scrubs, which, which obviously people know about. Uh, obviously, people are know, you know, increasingly getting to know BBC and, and what's going on there. 
obviously we know Wembley with the arch. Um, but within this area here, you're talking about 20%, or well, about 17% of London's homes and jobs over the next 20 years. It's a phenomenal level of development that I don't think people really quite kind of got their head around yet about the scale of opportunity. Now, it's not, all, not necessarily going to happen, but it's a scale of opportunity. And if you just think Old Oak South, Old Oak is about a Hyde Park away from Hyde Park. That's kind of how close into central London it is. And, and why are we talking about this kind of area of London, which has been a kind of a, uh, a workhouse of industry over the last century? Well, effectively, DFT and High Speed 2 are building the biggest station to be built in the UK in a century. Uh, uh, in the middle of, of our core development site. And that's uh, High Speed 2, Great West Main Line, Crossrail, London Overground. This station will be, if you think about how big Waterloo, how busy Waterloo Station is, at its busiest time, say on a Friday afternoon, 275,000 people interchanged there over a three hour peak. This will be about 90% the capacity of that. So that's a phenomenal level of people coming to a brownfield site in West London. And actually our role as a development corporation is to how do we build a place around that? So, you know, the Olympics started with the games. We, we've got a station which we're not delivering and actually that presents huge challenges for us. But, but actually that's our, that's our kind of catalyst. That's our reason uh, for trying to, you know, transit oriented development at, at its key. Uh, but the starting point is, is, that's the starting point, but actually immediately after that, it's actually, this is Harlesden Town Centre. What does building a new city on Harlesden's doorstep mean? That's 25,000 new homes, a significant new commercial centre of, you know, variety of different types of sectors. Actually, what does that mean for a small high street, which does well in parts and not so well in other parts? Uh, it's been in the news, gets in the news a lot for bad reasons, but actually it's quite a nice place and quite diverse. And how do we, you know, a lot of residents in that area are quite fearful about what might happen. It's got some fantastic qualities at the moment. The Grand Union Canal, about three kilometres east of here, you're into Granary Square and King's Cross. And it's got the Rolls-Royce building where Rolls-Royce used to have their original headquarters and actually trying to think about how we keep that building, how we do something really innovative and interesting with that to start to create a bit of an identity. Because like most people, when I say the first that is most people nod, yeah, I've never heard of Old Oak and Park Road, but actually how do we create a new identity? Um, but it's also a working place at the moment and actually has a lot of jobs. About 46,000 people are employed across Old Oak Park Royal, about 2,000 businesses. And yes, there will be a size, about 140 hectares of that land will be redeveloped. But actually, how do we work with the remaining 400 hectares, which would be protected as strategic industrial land? So participation is a huge part, and the slide is probably the, is the, is the only one I could grab. But, you know, it's basically, for us, uh, you know, this is where we're at at the moment, really. And it's a lot about participation. As we move through the process, it becomes more about consultation and you're consulting on planning applications. Um, but the big one for us, actually, is what we call our Great Place Scheme. And this is kind of, you know, using the mayor's brand about made in Tottenham or made in Park Royal, this is. It's actually, we've just, draw, we've just secured about £1.5 million from these funders to think about how we work with local businesses, local residents, local communities, so that actually we can create active citizens over the next three years. So it's kind of getting businesses and residents in the area to think about you know, what is really interesting about Old Oak Park Royal so that actually we can use those elements to kind of help shape the future um, of the area. And, and, you know, being really clear, this is, you know, this, this isn't, 
haze. It's not, we don't have a vinyl factory. We've got some other great things, but this is really big development going on and actually getting that into people's mindset and using this measures to kind of do that is really important. And this is just, you know, we've done it, we're in, we're in a kind of a fact-finding or, or prepare stage, as we call it, which is, you know, where are the list of buildings? Where are the interesting, you know, this is the Rolls-Royce building. There's some other small-scale heritage buildings around there. There's lots of conservation areas. When we do development, how, how are we thinking about those? What's the future need of the area? Uh, health, education, affordable housing, um, uh, utilities, so mapping what is it that we need, and then thinking more creatively about how do we meet social infrastructure requirements? This is, you know, it's big density stuff. This is kind of a new topology for London. And, you know, this is, this is, the, this is Dawson Junction. This is a primary school built with, you know, residential above it. And, you know, these are the types of measures that we have to think about. How do we provide schools and healthcare in, in new ways that meet London's, you know, pretty scarce land? Uh, so Old Oak Park Oil is three areas. It's Wormwood Scrubs, it's Old Oak, which is the core development site, and it's Park Royal, which is the industrial land that we're looking to, to retain. <coughs> I think the, 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 arrow, the circles have shifted a little. Um, but how big is Old Oak? So the core site is 140 hectares. And if you just think about that in comparison to other parts of London, it's the whole of the city in the South Bank. It's the whole, you know, it's the whole area from King's Cross, Euston, Camden Town Centre, the whole of the West End, as I would know it, uh, and the whole of places like Canary Walk. This is large-scale city planning that will take tens of, you know, many, many years to not only plan, but then decades to deliver, and actually will change significantly over time. So actually, what we're thinking a lot about now is actually just a framework to support that long-scale development. So this is the core site of 140 hectares. You've got Wormwood Scrubs in there, which we very much see as a fantastic asset, and we've got the Grand Union Canal. First part for us is thinking, okay, well, how do we... First, first for us is connecting Old Oak into the surrounding areas. So these are the existing key streets that, that move around the area. And for us, actually making sure that people in Harlesden and in White City and Kensal can actually get into the place quite simply. It's, we've got a clear idea, but just four new primary streets. There'll be a whole grid underneath that. But four new streets that connect this place into the surroundings. Then within that, there's a whole series. You know, Old Oak isn't one place. It's a series of different things. So... Around the new High Speed 2 station, there'll be a commercial focus. In Old Oak North, there'll be high-density residential. Scrubs Lane does something quite different. And I'll just pick up on one or two. And within that, we then say, well, actually, yes, there's, a, there's an overarching ambitious ambition around Old Oak North, but there are particular places where we do know a little bit more, and we actually do want to be more specific about what we're saying right now. But in other places, like over here, actually, we're not quite so sure. So let's leave that a bit vague. Let's leave that more open. Let's set some principles. So looking at kind of where some of those clusters are, thinking about, well, actually, around the High Speed 2 station, we do have some very clear principles about what it is that we want to see from that station. Around the new Hyde Road station, again, we've got some very clear ideas around Wills and Junction. And you can see our street network starting to connect these key places of activity together. But, you know, other places, you know, around some of, the, some of these sites in here, again, not quite so sure at the moment. So let's, let's not put a red line on a map, but let's think about how they might evolve and change over time. <coughs> So looking at you know, this cluster, so we've done a lot of work. There's a huge amount of technical work being done to figure out how the high-speed two station connects into its surroundings. And we use Holly sitting here uh, has helped us do a lot of work around some of the 
let's say, it's the same, hopefully there's no one from High Speed 2 in here, but it's a difficult conversations with them all the time. They are delivering a train line on time and in budget, and that's pretty much the com as far as the conversation goes for us. But you know, what we're trying to do is get them to think about actually, how do we create healthy streets? How do we make sure your station is connected? How do we create, use this station as a catalyst for, for kind of comprehensive redevelopment? So that's, so that's the area around uh, a high-speed two station, uh, which again, you know, the station won't open until 2026. And actually what we're trying to do is to make sure that when that, as that station's being designed, the Reba stage three for that will go out later this year. As that station's being designed, the right parameters are put in place. But actually places like Scrubs Lane, there is development taking place. There's opportunities for developments now. So we're being, you'll see like we're being much more specific around Scrubs Lane. So looking at Scrubs Lane, just, Quickly, it's again. It's a vibrant place. There's lots of businesses. There's lots of industry there. You know, there's lots of um, different types of uh, SME businesses. And actually, what we've done is design a framework that says these are the types of businesses that we do want to retain. So when we think about the layout of buildings, the design of commercial space, how do we design that in a way that these? It might not be. It might not be this uh, business, but actually it would be a business that's like that, that could take on that space in the future. Because you know, these businesses are going to have to move out and they may, they may want to come back. So looking at, you know, how do we, starting point about that for us, how do we then start to think about, well actually there's a surrounding context here, how do we start to think about the development capacity uh, and the quantum of development that starts to match up different parts of the area together. This is you know, rattling through some pretty complex stuff that we spend a lot of time doing. And then, you know, again, thinking about how might some of those kind of key nodes and junctions work together. Getting into a huge more amount of detail about, actually, this is, a, this is a particular plot on Scrubs Lane and, you know, setting some very clear principles about how we want to respect conservation areas on one side and then, you know, build development up as you go further into Old Oak down to the point thinking about, well, actually, how do some of these early development sites start to create a bit of a narrative about what that future might be? So things like little, like down to the detail of little things, like we've got a scheme in at the moment, and they will, you know, that one of their ideas is actually what we could put on the front of our building is a clock that talks about Scrubs Lane. It's, you know, lots and lots of little things, whereas this is another one where on, on Scrubs Lane, getting a billboard in, which just opens and shines a light a bit more on, this is Wormwood Scrubs, because people actually in the area don't, you can't really get into the scrubs at the moment, it's pretty underused, and actually just telling people that there's this fantastic asset there uh, is quite helpful. Probably the most challenging part of this whole thing is the delivery, and I suppose that's probably unsurprising, but um, just got one or two slides left. Um, mm -hmm. The pink shows the area that's currently owned by DFT, Network Rail, TFL, High Speed 2, and OPDC, we've got an in-principle agreement that that pink land will transfer over to our ownership. Um, now we did have a, we went through a mayoral election, new mayor came in and said, actually, I want, OPD, oh, I want OPDC to um, go back and talk to government about the terms of that transfer. There's a lot of things about his aspirations about affordable housing delivery that don't quite chime with what the pre perhaps the previous administrations was. So we've got a huge amount of work to do on that. But potentially, I think most exciting thing here is the fact that if you look at that is the land ownership arrangement for 140 hectares of land delivering 25,000 homes and 65,000 new jobs and actually it's quite small you've got 70% of the land is owned by the public sector you've got car giant who own 20 hectares of land about another 12% and actually that's the core site you've got you know you've got a couple of other small scale landowners but between the public sector 
and car giant, you've got nearly 85% of this core site, which actually puts it, makes it quite different to other places because you can start to think and carefully plan and start to curate the delivery of this, which gives you great opportunity and, and actually starts to afford us a bit more time at the outset. Now, we do have lots of small-scale things coming around at the, at the beginning, and, that, and that's fine because actually starts to, you know, from the mayor's perspective, we need to deliver homes and we need to get the, you know, the message out there that you know, delivery is happening. Uh, what we've done today is, is very high level, um, it's aspirational stuff, it's a lot of baselining, it's a lot of figuring out what people want, uh, and what we're moving into now is, is a detail stage about if we've got these aspirations, what infrastructure do we exactly need to unlock and deliver that? When might we need that? And if we put a bridge in, does that have some, what, how do we, de yeah, okay, how do we detail design that to make that happen? So anyway, we've just appointed ACOM, supported by some really interesting kind of placemaking teams to kind of think through the next layer of detail beyond that initial framework stage. Um, but safe to say, this is what London, this is what Wren's plan for London was after the Great Fire. Uh, safe to say, that's not really what happened. Um, so you could ask, why do we bother? Let's just leave it to the market to deliver. Um, but we'd all be out of profession. So um, that's, that's that. So all thank right, you very thank much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Three quite different stories, I feel, but all of which paint a portrait of where London's heading, um, rapidly in some cases. David, can I just ask you, there was, there was so much, and as you said, there was such, uh, sorry, not David, I'm sorry. Um, you, you kind of skimmed us through a huge, huge scale development, and as you say, it's going to take a long time. Um, do you think you could expand a couple of things to me? You mentioned um, the difference with having public sector-owned land and how that gives you a little bit of breathing space. Um, I'd like to hear a bit more about that. Maybe you might get questions. And the other thing I did want to ask you, because there are lots of acronyms and specialist terms, very simple. What's the difference between public participation and public consultation? So for us, actually, from the outset, I've been working on this for three and a half years, and actually, from the outset, actually, the goal was about, over the last two to three years, has been about sitting down with people. So we, we do, sorry, I've just jumped around on my own thinking there, but so things like we just had what we call um, a tea dance on Saturday, where we had about 120 local people come to uh, a space that we have kind of broadly fitted out at Old Oak, whereby people come, we had a, this one was a tea dance, so we had um, jive band in, so it was 120 people coming, talking, and actually there was no agenda, it wasn't about talking about planning or development mm -hmm. at Old Oak, it was just actually helping local people to get to know each other, um, which is kind of the great place, you know, that's the precursor to the great place idea, which is about how do we create active citizens and actually make people who care, because you know, if you go out and consult on a planning application, you will get the normal, I don't like development response, mm -hmm. you will get the normal six, and that's what you find, you get the normal six or seven people who are really active and, and they'll object, but actually what we're trying to do is to create active citizens who want to participate in the process. And that's what we've been doing over the last three years. So would you say, uh, and please correct me if I'm um, reducing too much, but would you say the participation phase is almost introducing people to the idea and consultations drilling down a bit more? No, I'd say actually, Other way around? I mean, I think you can say that consultation is almost after the fact. Okay. Um, you've already had your idea. It's all ready. You go out and you consult because it's, it's easy to do that. Um, you have to. There's a statutory requirement to do it. But the reality is, is that when you're consulting on a planning application, it's, it's, it's not that it's too late, but actually you're consulting on a pretty worked-up idea. Mm. I think for us, participation is about front-ending that. 
so actually local communities get to be involved when you're writing the plan at the outset and, and you how do you and, and to do that not get the normal few people who show up you've got to do things like a tea dance um, mm. and get people that no, normally go and that's just one event of you know multiple things that we've done and get and get them to come so so one of the really early positive things that came out of the participation was the retention of the Rolls-Royce building so you wouldn't think it to look at it but pretty poorly in a really poor state but actually there was you know one local uh, historian who kind of told us all about this building and we don't own it but actually through through that participation we've actually convinced the landowner to keep that now and, that, and, that, and, that, and that, that's just one example of, uh, of, uh, of that kind of early kind of getting people really around the table with maps on the and you know they bring their they bring their own you know ideas it's great I've got tiny, tiny questions for you, too, but I, I also, that's okay. I feel like I'm being indulgent. I should probably invite up the respondents um, to ask their prepared questions. So could I introduce uh, to you Holly Lewis and David Madden. Come up to <coughs> um, <so coughs> Holly is a registered architect, co-founding partner of a great practice called We Made That. Um, she was shortlisted for AJ Emerging Women Architect of the Year uh, in 2012, so... Big congratulations to Holly still for blazing the trail there. Um, and uh, we made that have led a kind of unique range of urban projects, um, both working with London Legacy, but also in particular boroughs, um, working with the GLA Mayor's Design Advisory Group. Um, and I think it puts her in a really good position to interrogate these projects at the various kind of scales and uh, speeds at which they're happening. And then on the end there is David Madden, his assistant professor in sociology and teaches in the cities program at the London School of Economics, um, working on issues of political sociology, social theory and urban studies. Um, and he's conducted extensive research in London, New York City and other, um, other parts of the world investigating things like gentrification and cultural redevelopment. Again, hopefully gives you both kind of insights into how we might interrogate these projects and what's happening. Um, so could I invite Holly first to put your, put your responses forward? Okay, um, well thanks very much. I thought that was really interesting and a kind of amazing spectrum of stuff that's going on. And I, um, I think it also, my question slightly also relates to what you were just talking about, Mick. Um, but it also stems from a visit that I did at the weekend to King's Cross, which I know is not West London, but it's like pretty central, so I don't think I'm breaking the rules. Um, which is like, how loud do we speak as architects? Because you're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum on these two projects mm -hmm. of like almost invisible, mm. can't really see it, to like loud and gramophones and really visible. Um, and the comment that um, I, I was with a bunch of Finnish people actually going around King's Cross, it's like all the architects had an agreement not to outdo each other. Like, everybody's quite kind of quiet. And there's been some um, comments, not so recently now, but Peter Cook described them as the biscuit boys, I think. There's, like, a, a way that London is building architecture at the moment, which is, like, brick and does look a bit like a biscuit, and it's quite gritty. Uh, and there's, a certain, there's an aesthetic that happens at the moment. And these two projects are not that aesthetic, which I think is interesting, number one. And number two... Mick has got this kind of amazing, not blank canvas, but there's a huge amount of totally brand new stuff that, although there's context and you're kind of mindful of the edges of your development, like within the middle of that, kind of anything goes. So is it, how, how are you going to negotiate that? 
<laughs> how are we all going to negotiate that? Because I should think that in some way we'll all be involved. But it was just, it really struck me between those two presentations mm. Mm. that there's this kind of debate that actually at the moment a lot of what gets built is kind of quietly in the middle. It was supposed to be a general question, so that's, <laughs> well, that's I, my brief. Because <laughs> um, my question to David this time, actually, um, was, was about some of the architectural, let's say, aesthetics that, mm. that you are talking about. And one of the things that you mentioned was that your client, you and I, um, and also the attitude that you presented about the site is all about innovation. Do you think that helps, or how has that affected the architectural aesthetic that's being invited onto the site? You showed a couple of quite unconventional <coughs> things and some other more conventional things. Yeah, I think, I think um, London is a very, very rich and complex and unusual place. And, and it's loved by lots and lots of different people for lots and lots of different reasons. And yet, uh, when people put planning applications in, um, often uh, there can be a kind of an attitude that if you sort of sort of toe the line and, and, and follow this path and don't waver from this path, uh, you'll get an easy consent. And uh, not too much of, too much time is actually spent talking about design and architecture in place and identity. Mm. Much more time is actually spent about, are we going to get the consent? And, and frankly, that's the reason probably uh, there's so much, quote, biscuit uh, architecture out there, because actually it's easier to get a consent, because not so many people say, oh, that's a bit loud, I'm not sure whether I like that, uh, I might need to discuss that with you, oh, well, we don't want to discuss anything, we just want to get our consent. Mm. Um, at the old vinyl factory, I hope we're going to achieve a balance between background and foreground. Mm -hmm. I hope we're going to achieve a balance of retained buildings that are incredibly, in my opinion, beautiful, strong, gently iconic uh, buildings that were designed a long time ago. And I really say gently iconic. In that they, they kind of represented an era, I think. And um, I think a very light touch should be taken to transforming uh, the, those buildings. They're all designed by Wallace and Gilbert. Wallace and Gilbert and partners uh, a long time ago, and I think they're really beautiful. Uh, and then there'll be, there will be some slightly biscuit, <laughs> sorry to use that phrase, but gentler, Everyone simple, sim <laughs> gen gentler, simple, um, brick bricky, good London vernacular buildings, which will do a great job in delivering probably two, three, four hundred of the homes. And that's appropriate too, in my opinion. Uh, and then there will be some more foreground buildings, which will generally be the buildings that actually most people from a community perspective, from a neighbourhood perspective, actually engage with. And they deserve uh, to be a little bit louder and a little bit more expressive and a bit more unusual. Uh, and I believe that, that that's, that's a good balance. So the only time I get vexed about London's future is when people don't make the effort to pull out the slightly more unusual qualities that allowed the balance of the foreground to go with the background. Hmm. What about, Hazel, do you want to respond to how you're dealing with the aesthetic of the site at White City? Yeah, I, mean, I guess on a similar note to how you're dealing with it at the old vinyl factory, there's, um, you know, we're working in a location where there's a very, very strong, iconic building which is loved by a lot of people, mm. you know. I was saying before, you go to a, you know, you meet someone, you say what you're doing, and you're working on this building, and everyone has a story about it, and everyone has an, a, an affectionate memory of the building, mm. whether it's seeing it on Blue Peter or it's visiting it or working in the 
you know, the depths of the basement or whatever it might be, but lots of people have some sort of affinity with them. It's a funny them. one. It's like we all own it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. A, it's, a, you know, it's a national asset. And so working in that very specific context um, and with the local authority who are also very fond of the building, mm. um, you have to be, we have to be quite careful about how we you know, present that the early phases, which had to be slightly more subtle and... I guess background, as you're saying, you know, they had to frame the existing buildings and they had to work with the heritage assets which were listed and which are, need to be preserved. And we wanted to celebrate because they are very beautiful and, and worthy of preservation. Um, so the first phases are quite more quiet, mm. whereas the, the, the phases that will follow on, I think, do have the opportunity to be slightly more bold and um, maybe step away from the kind of the, the, the careful curation, which I think the, first, the, early, the early phases need to pursue. Um, but so, but, yeah. but the, the loudness can go wrong as well, mm. you know, and uh, and and the the notion of identity can be taken sometimes too literally. Um, I I was open enough to say that Gramophone Grove is on the verge of going too far, as it happens through very careful, I think very careful design and very careful consideration of the key elements of that space. It will be a really good space and actually won't be embarrassing and, and step too far. However. The, 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 the play space at the en at entry top point to the kind of the, the main neighbourhood, um, someone somewhere, I, I don't know them because um, you may or may not know this, but lots and lots of projects get carved up in different stages and someone you might see present at the start of a project might definitely not be there at the end of the project doing the detailed design. So a rather playful, characterful public space was suddenly turned into notes uh, because it was on the theme. And I, for one, thought it was disgusting uh, <laughs> that someone could design a playground with notes. My personal view, disappointed. So there's always this balance yes. of the, the literal kind of take and the more sophisticated, slightly more considered take, which is when one, well, when, when one balances as soon as you move outside of the kind of the, the easy, relatively safe, I've done it before thing. Um, but I would say that King's Cross has its fair share of buildings that have actually been crafted, I think, exceptionally well, you know, and I think anybody seeing the, the sun kissed the rather pink building uh, could definitely not describe that as biscuit. And someone standing in St Pancras Square and seeing the Corten building by Eric Parry, they're very, very strong individual buildings that they've carefully been crafted to sit friendly next to their neighbours. And there's equally a number of other buildings which have not so good. There are. I mean, yeah. as, as someone who works on that site, there's a, there's a fair few monsters, but then when you kind of surrounded in a sea of dross, those monsters, you start to get affectionate of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I was going to ask you guys uh, on, a, on a tangent, if I might, Holly, um, on this issue of, let's say, branding and identity. Um, both of you in, uh, invoked kind of strong narrative, uh, one that was pre-existing and, and potentially sensitive to deal with mm. at the BBC. I mean, I'm calling it the BBC. It's not, I shouldn't, right? Because it's not. Television Centre. Television Centre is, is yeah. what it's enduringly going to be called. Yeah. Um, I mean, even in the name there. Uh, and then yourself trying to unearth a narrative about the vinyl factory and music and so on. Um, I wonder if you could speak, it's not so much a question, but I wonder if you could speak to what extent that narrative's useful for you as a generative design tool, and to what extent you see it being used as almost a branding marketing tool. Uh, well, of course there's, there's benefits of both. Uh, when, when there, and I don't know the exact numbers for the whole of London, there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of homes 
always call them homes, being uh, developed at the moment, there is such an easy ability to think of them as units and just boxes that aren't actually particularly owned or loved by anybody, just boxes sort of somehow filling up space. I think as if, if I was a developer, I'd always want to be allowing uh, the scheme that I was involved in to actually not shout, but actually talk about the credibility, authenticity of a place, what it's about, and, and give, it, give it a kind of a, a story. Of course, mm. there can be the crass kind of naming of a building, you know, that's absolutely daft and is sort of embarrassing for everybody who then buys a, a home in it. But the, 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 the majority, I think, actually give, imbue, imbue a sense of place to, to the scheme. What we find, going to the participation uh, story, is that it's so often the case that people are so scared of change and so scared and so concerned about anything changing in their area, even if it's going to be for the good. And in every single scheme in London now, it's pretty much every single scheme in London, we are dealing with densities uh, far, far greater than we ever considered before, 15, 20 years ago, far, far greater densities. And as such, it's even more scary to think about change. And to invite people in to talk about their area and involve their area with a slightly different narrative, I find incredibly good in terms of breaking down barriers and actually allowing people to be a bit looser in the conversation. Uh, and I, and I, th I believe that's a really helpful thing. Hmm. What about, is, there, is there anything that you feel you want to pick up on in terms of how the narrative's been useful or even difficult for you to deal with at Intamin? <clears throat> no, I think it's been... Um, the whole BBC heritage and the, the nature of the television centre, I think, is it's definitely been a, a branding tool. It's definitely mm -hmm. been a marketing tool. But I th also think because of the emotional attachment, people are really interested in it. And mm -hmm. people are really, they want to celebrate it. They're interested in what's going to happen. Um, three of the television studios are being retained and um, another large um, area of land is being allocated for one of the commo BBC commercial ventures uh, worldwide. And I think... You know, it might be a marketing tool, but equally, it's of interest, and actually, people are are um, are buying into it. People want to, people want to be part of it. People want to live there, and they they um, they like the idea of being able to say that, that that's their home. Sure. Um, so yeah, it may be a marketing tool, but it seems to be. Oh, there's no there's no quite, sort of judgment on that. Quite I mean, effective. Yeah. One needs these sorts of images and, and yeah. things to hold on to. David, can I invite a question from you to any uh, or? Sure. Well. Um, thank you for inviting me here and, and for presenting these projects. I just want to say that these are all extremely thoughtful and exciting, and I was there are things in all of them that I really wanted to sort of emphasize and pick up on. I mean, with the old vinyl factory, uh, there's this really great density and sense of improvisation, um, which is really exciting. With the, with the television center, um, there's this wonderful respect for context and, uh, and this sort of wisdom that, that recognize that it is important to leave things there that are important and not uh, not destroy them. And uh, with Old Oak and Park Royal, uh, there's there's important thinking about integrating industry and and social need into urbanism. So I think that there's there's obviously a lot that's quite um, exciting in all these projects. But um, I mean, I'll say I approach these questions slightly differently, and I, I, I really straddle two worlds. I teach urban designers and architects, and I speak often to architects. Um, who look at look at these issues through categories like placemaking, vibrancy, active street frontages, um, really a lot of excitement for this for this contemporary urban palette, which is I, I think wider now than than had been in the past. But I'm also a sociologist, 
So I hear from tenants the idea that London is a massive struggle. And I mean, the sort of facts of this are, are, uh, are hiding in plain sight. I mean, we, we all know that there is a housing crisis. We all know that two thirds of uh, renter households, or, or the average rather renter household is paying two thirds of their income on rent, that there's gonna be a net loss of 7,000 social rented units due to regeneration plans that are already happening, that tens of thousands of homeless families are being shipped out of London every year. Um, so there's this real palpable sense of precarity, of alienation, of insecurity, and of housing and the city as a, a, a really a site for, for suffering and dispossession and struggle. And these two worlds really are not in touch very much. Um, and I think that's a problem. So my, my first question is, uh, what, what, does, what do each of these projects say about this disconnect um, between professional urbanists who are, um, for understandable reasons, often speaking to the needs and concerns of elites, and uh, to the majority of Londoners who are struggling to find a place in the city? Um, connected to that, I'm struck by the fact that this, this question of identity um, is, uh, is understood in a similar way across these three projects. They, they're, all of them look at identity as a matter of institutions, of industry, of forms. Um, but again, as a social scientist, I understand identity as something that people do, a question about communities, about social practices. Um, so my second question is, who, who are these projects for? Really, I mean, who who are who are we building these 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 projects for? As Shumi said, the identity of West London is um, in a state of flux, mm. and it's not it's not quite clear um, what West London means to a lot of people. But this this is a massive part of the city that is incredibly diverse, with migrant communities, um, incredibly uh, wealthy in some parts, obviously, but also uh, incredibly poor in others. It's a place of, of massive inequality. Um, and can we talk a bit about the, the people and the communities uh, that, we're, that we're imagining will be, will be using and inhabiting these spaces? Great. Can I push that to Nick first? Yeah. I think that's the challenge that, not just these three schemes, but that's the challenge that London faces. Exactly how you put it is we've got to house a million new people over the next 10 years. That's the population growing by over 10, by 15% over the next 10 years. That's a, a phenomenal level of, of development that needs to happen. But the mayor is very clear that you know, we're not building on Greenbelt. We're not building on MOL. Um, we're building on big brownfield sites. We're, we're infilling development within a compact city. And, and I think that's exciting in some ways because actually, you know, I still think you know, the urban renaissance from the late 1990s, you know, the urban design compendium, compact city ideals, I think they're still right. And I think actually by having people living close together on places like Hayes and, and, and television sites, I think you create great places. I think you can turn these big complex brownfield sites into a new topology for London, which I think we're all still grappling with. I think at Old Oak, I think the challenge I get every day is, well, what sort of place are you creating? I don't know, I can't say what Old Oak's going to be like in 20 years, but what I do know is we're building homes for Londoners. And, and actually what we're building is, it's not some people that we don't know who they are, they're everybody in the room here, they're, we're building places for people that 
we know and you know like so we understand the need of London we understand the need of our immediate local area and actually what we're trying to do is to build homes and spaces that we all know and understand so I don't think there's no great mystery to it we're just building places that we all know and use every day of the week um, but I, I think I think you do I, th I think the challenge is is that big you know from my perspective big brownfield sites are incredibly difficult to deliver mm -hmm. and I think the, the hardest thing that big places like Vauxhall and like Elephant or Castle and like Brent Cross and like Old Oak and you know the Olympic Village, I think what the challenges that they face are building a topology that people want to live in and doing that financially viably. Um, and I think that's the biggest one that I've you know that I, for me is how do we build at really really high densities that unlock these big complex sites and do that in a way that's recognisable and, and we want to live in. And I you know I'd, I'd love to say I absolutely have the answer to that. Um, but I think, you know, it's a question that we're all kind of grappling with. But, um, do you think, and tell me that you can't answer if you can't, but do you think you could make it, um, if you could illustrate for us a little bit how these attitudes shift? Because thinking back on the sorts of stuff that I deal with, London has dealt with um, huge population expansions. You know, during the Victorian era, the population expanded massively, yeah. pretty much at the rate that we're looking at now. Um, after the war, again, we had to house a hell of a lot of people in, and whether it's through the kind of rapid speculative development of Victorian London, kind of really rampant speculative development at the levels that we're seeing now are worse, or after the war when you had a huge state mechanism that kicks into gear and says, okay, we're going to house these people. Um, you've had the situation where you've been working on this project over a mayoral shift. Yeah. Is, there, is there anything yeah. you can tell us about how those attitudes are reflected? Um, I, th I think... In, 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 the, in the kind of, you know, with the expansion of the train lines, with the big industrial revolution, you know, I think London grew, but, the, the, you know, we have to remember that there wasn't, you know, Greenbelt, there wasn't MOL, it sure. was speculative, and it, and it sprawled out, and, you know, and, but actually a lot of what's come about of that is, you know, the Victorian suburbs and the Edwardian suburbs, which actually, um, you know, after years of trying to put it off, I've just moved to. Uh, and actually, oh, quite, 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 <laughs> and quite enjoy it now. Actually, in a weird kind of way. But, 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 but that's what you know. There's a huge parts of London that were built during that time. Post-war, you know, that was they were building new towns outside the UK. That's sure. right. You know, and, and the government is has grappled with that for you know years and years. How do we build new towns? And they've rebranded the Echo towns, and that didn't work. And rebranded them, you know, urban. You know, none of these things get off because people are worried about the development taking place near them. Um, but they were building new towns and, you know, the level of private development over the last 50 years hasn't really changed. It's fairly consistent, goes up and down a little bit, but actually in the 60s it was when council houses were being built. Mm -hmm. And actually that's when you were built, that's when you were meeting the housing <coughs> need. Um, but actually, you know, with the, with the caps on the HRA, etc., the councils just aren't allowed to build housing for themselves. And actually it's interesting when you read the housing white paper and the Tory manifesto, actually about recognising that like, there is a role for the public sector in this. And I think people are actually, in, you know, there's most senior levels in government, be that the mayor or be that government, DCLG, they're saying actually there is a role for the public sector in this. And I'm not sure, we'll, I'm not sure we're there yet in terms of councils playing huge roles in, in building social housing or London affordable rent housing, whatever we, whatever we call it this week. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I think increasingly the, the public sector has to step in and play a role in it. And that's why I think the most exciting thing about Old Oak is the quantum and the level, 70% of the land is in public sector ownership. Now, how we, how we as OPDC and the mayoral family take that forward, we know we're not clear yet, but actually having the mayor being able to say, this is what I want to deliver, 
Um, actually, getting him to that point is a challenge because um, you know, once, you put, once you put your hand up, you've got to deliver it. Um, right. But, well, I mean, it's interesting that in, in your discussion we're suddenly talking about housing rather than homes or units. But I guess if we're talking about public sector provision, it becomes housing rather than the production uh, yeah, look, of housing. You know, we, won't, we won't get with them. I work for the mayor, and you know, the mayor's number one priority is delivery of affordable housing. You know, right. that, that, trumps, um, that trumps all other discussions about identity or... Well, but, 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 you know, that's... Let me ask we you. Have, we have to do that in the, in the background of saying we're building housing and it's going to be really nice. <laughs> Let me just ask then Hazel and David to respond to the questions that um, other David put forward. So one was, if I can recap, how are you dealing with this gap in inequality? Um, is that roughly what the first question well, was? I mean, what, thinking about these projects, what, what do you make of the fact that there's, there, there's just a, a gap in, in sort of experience, I think, between... Um, people trying to make a place for them in this deeply unequal city, and um, urbanists. Uh, in you know, I'm not. I don't use that word in a, a, a as a term of abuse. Uh, but uh, urbanists thinking about, I think, place and space in ways that don't really capture the the difficulties that most people in London have. Right, and then I think following on from that, you were like, well, who is this for, yeah, given we, that there is this exactly. disparity? And can we think identity as, as a social reason? Well, you have to go first. Please look ahead. So I guess um, Television Centre, it's, it's a very interesting project, but it is a, um, a commercial project. It's not, it's not a local authority-driven project. Yes, it's done in partnership with them in many aspects, but um, you know, in the absence of the local authority delivering housing, or delivering any other use on that site, it has to stack up, it has to be viable, it has to follow loads of different, um, you know, it has to meet the bottom line of the, the developers have set. Is that the right answer socially? No. But is that the reality of the, the, the moment that we're working in? Yes. I mean, you know, that is, that is the context um, that we're working in. Who are we building it for? We are building it for our client, but I do also strongly believe that we are um, working on a project that will respond to the needs and the to the benefit of the local community. I think, you know, we are opening up the site, we are opening up blockages, and we are creating more public provision. Ethically, is that the right answer? Probably not, but that, you know, that is, that is the context in which we're working. But is um, that, do you feel like that's, that's where you as designers or, or um, did you call yourself master planners? Yes, I think you did, no? Well, in any case, do you think your, your think role is allowing you, allowing you to stretch the client's expectations of what might be possible on the site? Or yeah, I think we are, <coughs> to, to some degree. You know, we've, um, originally it was quite closed off and we, we consult, you know, we've made quite a lot of gestures, sorry, not gestures, lots of moves to open the site <coughs> up to create public routes which weren't necessarily desirable or, or ideal mm -hmm. for... A private developer, you wouldn't right. necessarily want to have people meandering through, but there's been quite a lot of opening up over the kind of the development of the um, the vision for the site. Um, so I think, yeah, I think moves have been made, mm. um, and I think the the conversation about housing is a tr is a tricky one because ultimately, you know, with the developer hat on, would you, what would you do if, if that's your site? Would you would you create a lot of, of um, Social housing—is that what—is that what you do unless you're forced to? And actually, right. I mean, that might not be the most politi like, political response, but actually, that is the—that is ultimately the truth of it. There's, there's a lot wrapped up in the idea of viability and the way of that course. viability is determined and what is considered to be viable of and course. how viability is calculated. Hmm. And um, I mean, it—it it seems 
like someone needs to be pushing for different ways of understanding what's viable, the time frames in which you understand viability, and architects and, and planners and urban theorists seem like they are people who, who could be pushing back. I think there's always a pot of money, there's always an amount of money that a scheme generates. You can determine how you arrive at that pot in slightly different ways, but you're typically tweaking within the system that we operate in, in the UK. So, so, so you change, I mean, so the only way, so we, we, work in a, we work in a system, and that is what the system allows us to do. Now, you can change the system at the most senior levels of government, which is a different, which is a very different question, and not one, not one for, that's a political approach. It's not one for the urbanists to say, we operate, because we, we operate within an established system. So when you define the pot, then you figure out how you're going to cut that, basically, and that's what you do. Are you going to spend it on infrastructure? Are you going to spend it on the most affordable types of housing? Or are you going to spend it on the least affordable, but you get more of a percentage? I mean, you know, this is how you, this is the balance. Do you have a slightly taller building that generates more money? So it is a balance, but, you know, unless the public sector <coughs> take control of all of the land, then, you, you know, this we op but we don't operate in that world. We operate right. in a free market. I think I'm starting to, very happy to, that I'm starting to hear little shuffles and squeaks from the audience. Can I just take one moment to see if, I'm going to see if you, if you have any responses to, to David's question about how might you be dealing with, um, with the situation that experience of living in London and the visions presented by Urban Vision is, is well, not matching up. I said in, in my, my 12 minutes that we're fortunate enough to be working on circa 20,000 homes in mm. the city at the moment. And that does mean that we're working with an absolute plethora of different clients, developers, public-private partnerships, all with very different array of uh, approaches and positions. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not for debate tonight. Uh, I think uh, the old vinyl factory question, uh, is, you know, for, for me, relatively easy because it's Zone 5. And it's very, very different to where the BBC, sorry, the, the television centre uh, is positioned and therefore has an incredibly different financial model and a completely different viability position. And so the, the, the approach that collectively we've taken at the, the, the old vinyl factory is, is genuine affordability and that's, that's throughout. Uh, and so as a designer, we've, we've seen... Uh, some of the things that we've drawn uh, actually fundamentally dumped down and got incredibly uh, more, quote, affordable uh, to, to allow the viability to be uh, more accessible in terms of, you know, the first phase building is the gate for building. It's a private rental sector model and it actually is working really well and it's completely full and it's actually at genuinely accessible rental levels. Uh, and, uh, you know, in a different audience, I'll probably be saying, oh, I wish the building was closer to our drawings. Uh, you know, decisions were taken to make sure that accessibility was there. Hub Group, who are delivering the boiler house, uh, which we've done the detail of, we're incredibly proud of. Mm -hmm. And yet, that is genuinely affordable building mm -hmm. as well. Uh, and because Hub Group happened to have that their model is utterly focused on, on providing Londoners with home. That's their entire agenda. Mm -hmm. um, I cannot speak on behalf of the other residential phases because they will literally have different developers with different agendas, with different uh, mo motivations. And um, yeah, in terms of the, the discussion tonight, defining identity and designing identity, um, you know, it's, it's always the, the decision, particularly in London, about 
what is viable and what is affordable. You know, numerous people are not massive fans of the external quality of the, uh, the building that houses the global UTC. Uh, it hasn't got any windows particularly, you know. But inside, uh, it has an amazing array of uh, media equipment, recording studio equipment, and it's a big black box. Is it better to have the black box with 800 students doing things that no one could have imagined they were doing, uh, ten, could do 10 years ago at the heart of the site? Or is it better to have an active frontage piece of urban design? You know, the decision's been taken to go for the, mm. the former rather than the latter. The place uh, will have to respond to deal with that black box. Look, really big questions um, across these three quite ambitious projects. Can I take some from the audience? I've worked in architecture and building services, and my personal primary concern is on energy efficiency. I see no excuse for building anything other than passive house or zero carbon from now on, because it's far too late. We're leaving it far too late. However, that's not my prime question. Um, why are architects and REBA and so forth not pushing back against central government and demanding more properly funded genuinely affordable social housing. It's far cheaper for central government to, to borrow money than it is anybody else. So why are we not pushing back? Uh, fair enough to hand it to the architects for this one. I, mean, I have thoughts, but <laughs> tell us, why are you not pushing back against central government? Is it your job? I think it is. I think it's everyone's job, isn't it, to, to make a statement on that and to put pressure on, I guess, is it within our control? No. Can we, as a group of interested and interested people, manoeuvre ourselves to push hard? I think I, I agree with you. I think we should. Um, is that going to solve this problem? Who knows? You know, people are, people are pushing, aren't they? Um, I don't see it. I don't hear it. David, what do you think in terms of um, architects' role in, in pushing back or responding to government policies? Do you think there's a role more than, let's say, an ordinary citizen, or no? Um, more than an ordinary citizen. Well, I don't think uh, designers are more than ordinary citizens. Well, quite. But uh, I think I think we're, we're we're kind of all just doing doing our job. And uh, look, I think the, the question is a tricky one to answer on this stage because we're here to discuss designing identities. Uh, so, so in a sense, uh, I think it's a tough question. And secondly, I believe that Reba. Uh, with mm. its incoming, incoming new president uh, is actually doing as, as, as much as it probably can to be taking these issues to central government. And REBA do represent the whole of the kind of the, the architectural workforce in this country. And so I don't want to buff the question off, but truthfully, that is their role. You know, our role is to uh, manoeuvre within the kind of the, the, the situation that we inherit uh, writ large and try and okay. do the best thing for each and every neighbourhood we work in. Uh, if I was the president of REBA, it would be my job to answer your question and to take that to government. And if I am ever the president of REBA, not that I'm an architect, I would actually take, take, <laughs> take that question more properly. Um, All right. I, I was actually wrong there. We have 25, uh, sorry, not 25 minutes, but more closer to 10 or 15. So I'm going to have to speed things along. Honey, you had I one just wanted one. to add something, because it seems like a slightly unfair question. Because even if all of the architects in the whole of the country said something about it, we're still hardly anybody. And nobody really cares what architects think. I don't think the power of architects is as omnipotent as the question implies. I think and actually the, the, the onus is, is 
there's a, there's a there voice. A voice. There's a voice, but I think to make the change that we're talking about at the levels that we're talking about, the voice needs to be amongst the electorate, and that's why mm. Sadiq is pushing the agenda that he is because he's elected on that basis, and that's a bigger voice. You need the voices of everybody, not just the voice of architects. Let me, why don't you take a couple of questions? Let me take yeah. Let me take two or three questions just so that we have the opportunity to answer a few. There's one behind you, and there's um, a lady in the middle, just there. To answer the gentleman's point over there, <clears throat> 16 of London's 33 boroughs are building council houses and they are putting in place business plans now. Uh, some of them are planning as many as three to 5,000 homes. So I predict that you're going to see a very big shift in the delivery of council funded uh, homes very shortly and over the next 10 years that's going to be a really dramatic uh, change in how council housing uh, re-emerges in London again. So I think things are happening there that's good. But the question is why were the, uh, why were the increase in London's population over the last uh, census period which saw 100,000 extra people arriving in London a year kind of ignored by the planning system and politicians and uh, is it not the case that a lot more resource needs to be spent on what say Mick or the GLA is doing now which is planning and thinking about how to deliver what we do need and the problems that we're dealing with now are really stem from the absence of spending mm. on that and thinking about it. I think that's probably potentially stuff that we can reflect on. There was one more question in the middle of the audience, if you can put your hand up again. So I've been um, campaigning in West London um, for over 10 years and I've got very au fait with the planning system. And I find that the, um, the problem with the placemaking is that the planning system doesn't enable um, planning to be properly placed into the community. And what you actually said was that before consultation takes place it's too late and so what you've got is buildings being built that are totally what the architect and the um, the architect and the person doing the development wants and so you have social housing continually not being part and element of that and then there's no way that that will change in the future so all you're getting is um, developer directed development and no social housing and yeah. no in integration with the community either. But is there a question you'd put to one of the three panellists, or, well, or indeed the respondents? Uh, well, I think that the planning system is at fault, because you're, you're sitting there, you're saying, we're going to build Old Oak, but we don't really know what we're doing. And there's policy in place saying exactly um, how much of that housing should be affordable, a percentage which any private developer will ignore. There's a policy in place that tells you how many hectares of open space there should be per person, which is ignored in nearly every development. There's a policy in most councils telling you how much place space there should be, which most council, most private developers ignore. And so the planning policy completely lets down people who are less well off who want to be housed, families who want to live where there's green space and play areas. Um, you talked about biscuit buildings, which are robbing London of any identity at all. Now, you put a slide up of Old Oak. I was so excited. I didn't even get a biscuit. I got a biscuit box for the biggest station that you're going to build in London for over 200 years. I got a white biscuit box. Now, it's Old Oak. 
oh, oh, can we not have a fantastic double circle building? Can we make a statement? We don't want a white biscuit box. You know, this is it's just not good enough. I mean, to be fair, I'm going to take one more question. No, that's, that's all right. If, thing, if things get emotional, it's just because we're talking about things that matter. I'm going to take one more question here. But just, I mean, I guess just, just to kind of buffer that slightly, it's my understanding, Mick, that you're not... You guys aren't designing the buildings as such, right? I mean, you've invited Asif Khan and Bjarke Engels Group and, and other exciting designers to animate that space, no? Yeah, I, mean, it... I mean, I think, um, I mean, there's a huge amount. I mean, I, you know, I understand, I can sense the emotion there. So, you know, I'm not going to understand what you're saying. I think, I think we all work in a potentially flawed system. Um, I mean, they still don't have Indian weddings there. You know, it delivers most of London's plastic triangle sandwiches are made there. You know, these are very basic fundamentals for London yeah. that all happen in our vote. I mean, you shove up all these biscuits and... The brief that I was given right at the start, which was three points, which was how are we engaging with people? Yeah, which I talked about. How, what, what's, how are we thinking about the social and economic needs of the future, which I talked about in the three or four minutes that we had? And how we're talking about the identity of the place. And, and my point about the identity was not that we don't know what we're doing. We do know what we're doing. But we don't exactly know, exactly as David was saying. I couldn't tell you, there's, you know, we, you know there's, that corner of it will have a 15-story building and it will be a fantastic piece of architecture. Because we're about two years into what is thinking about London over the next 30 years. We've got some very clear ideas about particular parts of the area. And we're being very, very clear and very specific on those from a, from a place-making and, and kind of street network and spaces. But, but on the affordable housing point, I didn't come to talk about that today. Mm. Um, but, you know, you said nobody's championing affordable housing delivery. Well, I think Sadiq Khan would probably take a slight different view that actually he's been elected on a manifesto of affordable housing delivery. And, and after he was elected sat down with his team and said, I'm, I'm going to have a look at OPDC, OPDC's priorities. And it took him about 10 months because he had to deal with things like the Garden Bridge uh, in, in advance of that, which, you know, oh, thank God I'm not working on that one. Um, <laughs> but actually, got, when he got around to us, said, do you know what, I'm, I want you to go back and look at a whole rake of things because I've been elected on the need to deliver affordable housing. And, and uh, you know, some of the things that a previous administration did and wanted us to do, you know, didn't quite neatly chime with his priorities. And that's, that's what elected politicians do. So saying mm. the industry is at fault, but, well, actually, decisions are made by politicians. And actually, planners, changing... Planners. No, 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 planners no, don't decisions make decisions. are made by the politicians. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to need to cut this short, right? We have the opportunity to have uh, drinks and further discussions on, on um, more detailed points. Um, I'm sorry, it is going back to the affordable housing thing. <laughs> okay, well, clearly it's something no, we need to it's, talk it's about. It's actually a serious point, is that Old Oak is a kind of unique site where, as you say, 70% is in public ownership. Is there any exploration of a completely new model of delivering real, genuine, affordable housing? Because you could argue that at least 70% should be affordable housing, if not 100% affordable housing. So... Is, is there any work being done around thinking about when we, you have publicly owned land, how you can actually deliver affordable housing that would be affordable in perpetuity, not just for the first owner? I mean, just if I can say, um, one of the great things that you did say, at least one of the points of optimism that I hang on to with the Old Common Project, sorry guys, um, 
is that 70% of it is owned by uh, the public sector, which means that you're liable and accountable and responsible yeah. and, and various other things. So I take that as a positive. Yeah. And also your point about indeterminacy of not quite knowing what the right thing is to do, because if you were developer-led, you wouldn't have time we, to be indeterminate we, about we, things. We, we don't own the land yet. Um, you know, the mayor's asked us to go back and talk to central government again, which we're doing. Um, uh, and who knows the outcome of how that might pan out. But, but ultimately, what's important, and I didn't show, I'm just conscious, I didn't show some of the area. It's an incredibly difficult site. Um, you know, there's no development there at the moment. It's all train lines. There's no development there at the moment because it's completely inaccessible. And, and actually, if there's not a huge amount of investment in the infrastructure, and I mean that bridges and roads and healthcare, and, you know, there won't be any development. So we need to think about how that's funded and actually what the impact of delivering that um, is on, on the ability to actually provide development. And I think to assume that, and so part of the conversation with government for us is how can the, how can the government, the mayor, everybody, contribute from the public sector side to provide that infrastructure? But again, there's only ever a finite amount of money. And I think when you read the various different manifestos from the different, different political parties at the moment, they've all got, you know, some say nothing else for London, London's had its fill, we're going to spend money, you know, here and there, and, and, and others talk about where well, we're going to do loads, and, and, you know, and I think, you know, who, different, different, you know, the, I think where if, we get money from is the, is the big issue. I think if anything um, has been illustrated by the project today, it is how <coughs> complex these things are, that decisions aren't made in straight lines, that things do change over time, and that there are... Lots and lots and lots of stakeholders, not least all of us as citizens of London, but also other stakeholders who have other agendas. So it's, it's really difficult. And thank you for being um, honest and brave enough to present your project. And thanks for interrogating them. So if you wouldn't mind joining me in thanking the panel. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.